Now in chapter 24, we finish the judgment against the nations. It all is consummated and comes down to one focal point in the great tribulation at the end of the age, after the church is removed. And we therefore need to keep in mind now the major divisions of Isaiah that we gave in the outline at the beginning. From chapters 1 to 35, the theme is judgment. Now we've been snowballing this from nation to nation, and it now comes down to the great tribulation period. And from chapters 13 to 23, we saw God's judgments upon these surrounding nations. Now from 24 through 35, this is a new section. We see judgment is still the theme, but the next few chapters of this section are entirely future. Both Dalich and Jennings consider it thoroughly eschatological. Some have labeled the next few chapters the little apocalypse, that is, like the book of Revelation. And I'm just going to hit high points here, by the way. We have the great tribulation as a worldwide judgment from God. Behold, verse 1, "...the Lord maketh the earth empty, maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof." Now, the word earth here can be considered, it's Eretz in the Hebrew. Some consider it just the land of Israel, other the whole earth. And I think that it actually is twofold. And it speaks of the earth, the judgment that is coming in the great tribulation. And God will judge not only the land of Israel, but the entire world during that period. Now, in verses 13 through 15, the tribulation saints are preserved through the great tribulation period, by the way. And we have this, that in the midst of the land, among the people, there shall be as the shaking of an olive tree, the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. They'll lift up their voice, and they shall cry aloud, Wherefore, glorify ye the Lord in the fires, even the name of the Lord God of Israel in the isles of the sea. In other words, the remnant will be small. They'll lift up their voice to glorify God. Now, in the time of testing, of tribulation, they'll be able to glorify the Lord, even the name of the Lord God of Israel the isles of the sea. So there's to be a remnant at that time that will be of Israel and then out to the very isles of the sea. That would include the whole earth, of course. Now we come to the third division here, and the great tribulation is a time of universal and unparalleled suffering. Verse 16, "...from the uttermost part of the earth have we heard songs..." even glory to the righteous. But I said, my leanness, my leanness. And Dr. Jennings translates that, my misery, my misery. That's what it's going to be. Woe unto me! The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Yea, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. Now, one of the things that will characterize the great tribulation period is going to be deception. In fact, verse 17 says there are three dangers that will be upon the inhabitants of the earth in that day. Notice them. Verse 17, fear and the pit and the snare are upon thee, O inhabitant of the earth. Now, 
fear in that day. There's no freedom from fear here. By the way, it was quite interesting that the Atlantic truce, you remember that Mr. Churchill and Mr. Roosevelt drew up, they said that one of the things that they wanted to bring into the world was freedom from fear. Well, how about it today? You want to look about in the world, the mob is marching, dissatisfaction and fear everywhere. This will be multiplied. And in the Great Tribulation, freedom from fear will not be there, but great fear. Pit is the danger of death. And hanging over this world today, there is a, a little atom, and that little atom is frightful. Death. Death even to the population of the world. But God says he won't let that happen. The Lord Jesus said that except those days were shortened, no flesh would be able to survive, but he's going to shorten the days. Then the third thing is snare. That is, that's deception. You remember that the Lord Jesus began that great Olivet Discourse that fits right into the Great Tribulation period. He said, "...take heed that no man deceive you." It's the time when the world will be led to believe they're entering the millennium. You get that impression today, don't you, from some of the world leaders that they're going to bring in the millennium. Well, then they're going to bring in nothing but the Great Tribulation period. And that's what Antichrist will do, of course. But the world will think they're entering the millennium, they're entering the Great Tribulation period. Deception. Antichrist, the one of the things that characterize him is he's a deceiver. And after all, that's what his papa is, the devil. The devil is a deceiver. And how many people today are deceived? They're deceived about life. How many people today are even thinking of eternity, just things of the here and now? And today... We find even science, the great organization, now rejecting for the first time the creation account. They don't want it. That's a great day of deception. You can be deceived today by science. You can be deceived today by politicians. You can be deceived today by educators. You can be deceived today by the military. And you can be deceived today by all these protesters. And the only help today is to turn to Jesus Christ. He's been made unto us wisdom and the only hope. But in that day, they really are going to buy this. And I tell you, Antichrist privately will be able to look at a world and say, sucker, that's what they're going to be. Oh, my friend, the devil has long since said that the human race are a bunch of suckers. And that's what we are unless we turn to Christ. Now we have here, verse 18, "...shall come to pass that he who fleeth from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit." Some think they'll get rid of fear, and the next thing it means death. They may walk out and say, oh, I'm not afraid. And then the next thing it drops, and that's it for them. May I say to you, then those that don't go down into the pit of death will be snared. It's a time when the book of Revelation says one-fourth of the population is taken out at one time in a great judgment. Another, a third of the population. You talk about the population explosion, the explosion's going to reduce the population in that day. Now we have, when we come here to verse 22, we see tribulation saints are going to be raised from the dead. This is a marvelous passage of Scripture. They'll be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit. 
and shall be shut up in prison, and after many days shall they be visited. That is, they go down into death, and then they're to be raised from the death. I believe that what you have here is the fact that the tribulation saints are part of the first resurrection. They're going to be raised from the dead. I'll not read Revelation 20, verse 4 and 6, but you ought to read that. Now, the fact of the matter is, this is going to end by the coming of the king. Verse 23, "...then the moon shall be confounded, the sun ashamed, when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously." And even nature is going to respond to the king when he comes to rule. And he's the only one that can end this period known as the Great Tribulation period. Now, chapter 25, we have here the kingdom. After the Great Tribulation, the Lord Jesus comes, he ends it, and then he establishes the kingdom. And this chapter brings us into the kingdom age. That's what the Old Testament's all about, that there's coming the king, and there will be the kingdom of heaven upon this earth. Now, that's what John the Baptist meant. When he began his ministry, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lord Jesus took up that message, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, our Lord, when they rejected the king, you can't have a kingdom without a king. When they rejected the king, there's no kingdom. And then he could say privately, personally now, Come unto me, all ye that labor in a heavy laden, I'll rest you. That's still his invitation today. It is a message to be sent out to individuals to exercise their free will. And my friend, you're making a decision, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not. You either make a decision for him or reject him. And somebody says, you don't get me on that. I will not make a decision. I will not accept him, and I don't reject him. You don't? Listen to him. He that's not for me is against me. You have to. There's no such thing as neutral ground. Now, we come to this wonderful 25th chapter, and it's a song. And this song has three stanzas here. We have first five verses, Praise to God for deliverance from all past enemies. You see, now they've entered the kingdom, no more enemies. Praise to God for provision of all present needs. Be wonderful to have someone here that will be able to meet the needs of mankind. Verses 6 and 8. And then, praise to God for anticipation of all future joys. That's verses 9 through 12. Now, will you listen to this? O Lord, Thou art my God, I will exalt Thee, I will praise Thy name, for Thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of all are faithfulness and truth. This is... Praise to God for deliverance now. They now are in a time of great blessing. And this is a song of sheer delight and wonder and worship. And this comes from a heart overflowing. For the worshiper now has come into a new knowledge of who God is and what he's done. This is not the average song service that you have in a church on Wednesday night. Some of the saints sitting there wondering why in the world they came in the first place. May I say to you, this is those that are eager to worship God 
because of faithfulness and truth. Now, these are the attributes of deity, and they are foreign to humanity today. The Scripture says, "...put not your confidence in man, put not your trust in man." Isaiah's already said it. "...and faithfulness is the fruit of the Spirit, and not the work of the flesh." And truth is the very opposite of man. You remember David said, all men are liars. But David said, I said it in my haste. Dr. Carroll used to say, David said, I said in my haste, all men are liars. Dr. Carroll said, I've had a long time to think it over. I still agree with David. Now, will you notice? Verse 2, thou hast made of a city unheap. You see, all of the past now is gone. There's deliverance from the enemies of the past that don't need now a wall around the city to protect them. And now the strong people will glorify thee. What a picture. This means, I think, worldwide conversion. Verse 3, "...therefore shall the strong people glorify thee, the city of the terrible nations shall fear thee." Man will turn to God in that day in the kingdom. The greatest, I think, revival, that is, of turning to God, is in the future. Now the night of sin is past, the night of the great tribulation. The day of the Lord always begins with night, the evening and the morning, or the first day. Weeping will endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And that's what you have here, joy during this period and what a period it is. And then we have here praise to God for his provision for present needs. Will you notice here? And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things. Won't have to worry about putting on weight in that day. Reducing will not be a problem in that day. You can eat the fat things. Now, that has to do with physical provisions, certainly. But it also speaks of the wonderful spiritual feasts that they'll have. I think they're going to be Bible classes in the millennium. And very frankly, I don't know. Maybe the Lord let me teach one in that day. I'd like to. And then he speaks here of the Feast of Wines on the Lees. That has a spiritual significance. The unutterable joys that wait those that enter the kingdom... Remember the Lord Jesus said, "'Come, ye blessed of my Father.'" What a picture that we have here. And I must drop down now and look at the anticipation of all future joys. That's verse 9. "'And it shall be said in that day.'" We're moving now into the kingdom. "'Lo, this is our God. We've waited for him. He will save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him.'" We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The world was deceived by Antichrist, but now the real Christ has come, the real Messiah, the real ruler of this earth. And my, I tell you, God and his salvation are going to be very vital to man in that day. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And what a wonderful picture that we have here. And this is a strange one. For in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest. Moab shall be trodden down under him. Even as straw is trodden down for the dunghill. Why is Moab introduced here? Well, I'll be very frank. It's very difficult to say. 
But when Moab is up, God is down. When God is up, Moab is down. And in the kingdom, Moab's going to be down. God's on top. That's the picture. For Moab, as you will recall, we mentioned the fact that it represents something. And Moab represents a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And then we're told, "...and the fortress of the high fort of thy walls shall bring down Lalo, bring to the ground even to the dust." All pride of man will be brought down. And this is the period when the meek are going to inherit the earth. They're not doing too well today. Now, in chapter 26, it continues to talk about the kingdom. We have, first of all, prospect. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah, verse 1. That's the prospect. They're going to have a song in that day. They don't have it today, friends. It would be very difficult to say that the present return is a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, we have introspection, and that is in verse 9. He says, Therewith my soul have I desired thee in the night. And that is something. I wonder how many of us recognize this and recognize this great need. Now, we saw it in the little Song of Solomon, the book of the Song of Solomon. And you remember there when the bride spoke of, Kiss me, and that was the kiss of pardon and of peace and of passion. And then the bride recognized she couldn't rise to the heights. And she says, draw me, and I'll run after thee. That's what you have here. With my soul have I desired thee in the night. Do you have today a passion for God? Oh, I hear so much of this pseudo and this smattering of spirituality today. And it has to do with this piosity, and quoting of pious platitudes. I get so tired of hearing them. Oh, I love the Lord, and I want to serve Him. My friend, when you lie on your bed at night, do you have a desire for God? You really want Him. Do you have a real passion? Are you able to say, draw me? I want to run after you. And in that day, they will be saying, I tell you, this will make the millennium any day in the week. With my soul have I desired thee in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. I find in my life, and I make a confession, I find I'm running from him a great deal of the time. And I find I get way out ahead and maybe step out of his will and then the tensions come, and then I'm frustrated. And then I say, oh, I've left him. I've gotten away from him. I'm not close to him. May I say to you that our soul might cry out for him today. I don't see much of that, friends. I don't mean to be critical, but I don't see much of it. And when I do detect it, what a blessing it is to my own heart. Now, retrospect, verses 16 through 20. One here, and this looks back on the past. The picture is a woman with child. Verse 17, like as a woman with child that draweth near the time of delivery, 
is in pain and crieth out in her pangs, so have we been in thy sight, O God. They looked back to the past. And that great tribulation was like travail. Verse 18, we've been with child. We've been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth. And today, my friend, the suffering that comes to you, that can be a birth pang that'll bring forth something worthwhile, or it can be just wind. And I'm afraid a lot of us are suffering today for nothing because of the fact we are not seeing in it that all things work together for the glory of God. We're talking now about the millennium, but some of us could be actually living in the state of the millennium today. Verse 19, and let me read this. It says, Thy dead man shall live together with my dead body, shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Now put with that the wonderful fact that these people are looking back during the time of the kingdom here on earth. The fact that they went through the great tribulation period, and as they went through the great tribulation period, it was like travail of a woman with child. And now they are in the millennial kingdom. And he goes on to say here, Thy dead shall live. Now, this is, as it were, the voice of Jehovah breaking into the prophet's reverie as he looks back. Thy dead shall live. Well, who's dead? Well, obviously, I think it's the nation Israel. That's what he's talking about in this chapter. And he continues, My dead body shall arise. Now, some interpret this as the national resurrection of the nation Israel, as it's used in Ezekiel 37, where we have the valley of dry bones as the counterpart. Well, others, they turn to Daniel 12, 2, where the resurrection there is definitely individuals. Well, somebody says it's not both national and individual, is it? Well, I think, actually, it refers to both. Why? Well, it's difficult to have a resurrection of a nation as suggested here, without having the resurrection of the individuals who constitute that nation, I don't see how you could have a resurrection without the resurrection of the individuals. Now, these dead are now included in the Hallelujah Chorus, and the word is, Awake and sing. Now, the thing that impresses me about the millennial kingdom here upon this earth you and I are living on an earth that's actually, in one sense, and if you want a doleful picture of it, it's a cemetery. They're dead everywhere today. Cemeteries everywhere. And there's not a moment of the day or night but what there is in a procession on the way to the cemetery. Now, that's not something to think about all the time because it's not a pretty picture. But God says this earth was never intended to be a big cemetery. He's going to stop that trend, and he'll reverse it. He's bringing back from the dead not only the saved, but the lost, and they're being brought back for judgment. The whole thought here is that this earth that you and I live on will never have a dead body in it throughout eternity. That's going to make it a pretty nice place to live.
Now, as we come here to chapter 27, we have the third wonderful song of the kingdom. And we had it in 25 and 26. And now the kingdom is concluded here, the coming of the kingdom. And the chapter brings to a conclusion the threefold song of the kingdom. And I want you to notice the way that we've divided it. You have first the song of the vineyard in the first six verses. 7 through 11, the smiting of Israel and her enemies. And that's contrasted. And then the sure return of Israel to the promised land. And that is confessed. Now, will you notice this? That would be verses 12 and 13. Now, verse 1, in that day, that projects us immediately into the future. We have said that day is a technical expression that refers to the day of the Lord, the day that begins as a Hebrew day did with the evening, the time of the great tribulation, and it goes on into the millennial kingdom. And personally, I think on into eternity, because that's the sunrise that's never going to end. Now, in that day, the Lord with his sower and great and strong sword. What is the Lord's sword? Why, the Word of God. It says, when the Lord Jesus comes out of his mouth, goeth a sharp two-edged sword, and with it he'll smite the nations. Does he have a literal sword there? And that's what an amillennialist said to me, you take everything literal? You think that is a literal sword? I told him, I said, you know, when I discover that the tongue is like that, it's really a sharp thing, and that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, that I take it that it's the Word of God by His Word. And that's all God has to do. By His Word, He created all things. By His Word, He shall judge. And who is He going to judge? He shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that's in the sea. Now, we have here the punishment of Leviathan. And I think, frankly, that this verse really belongs to the end of the last chapter. But that's, again, a technical point, and I don't care to enter into that discussion. But the important thing to note about this verse here is it's in that day, and it's in that day at the beginning of the kingdom that the Lord Jesus, at that time, will bring judgment upon the serpent, Leviathan. Who is he? With Satan. And he is to be put in the bottomless pit for a thousand years, we're told. And I think that we can identify it as Satan. We're told the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth. His angels were cast out with him. That's Revelation 12:9. And now we find in Job 41, 15, and 17, I'll not read it except to say his scales are his pride. You see, they were for his protection. And Satan thinks he's invulnerable, that he cannot be touched. And this leads, of course, to the pride of Satan. He doesn't realize, I take it even today, that he can be judged. He thinks probably he's beyond the judgment of Almighty God. And by the way, there are a lot of people like that, you know. Many people think today, there's no judgment coming. They poo-poo the idea. 
And that's a satanic thought, by the way. And what you have here is a reference to that. And I probably should call attention to the fact that several of the outstanding interpreters, including Dalich, they think of him as Satan, but also as referring to the Tigris River that snakes in and out, and the Euphrates River, and the Nile River, and the Tigris River. The nation of Assyria was there. Babylon was by the Euphrates River, and Egypt was by the Nile River. And this works out. Back of these nations, the kingdoms of the world belong to Satan anyway. I think this is a marvelous figure of speech we have here. Now, the chapter actually begins with verse 2. Listen to this. In that day sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. Now we're in the millennium. You can sing now, and I'll be able to sing then. I've been interested when I mention the fact in Psalms, I wish I could sing, but I can't sing. I've had any number of people that have sent me an original composition that they've written and wanted me to sing it. Well... I can't even sing the old-time religion very well, and that's the only one I really know. Now, will you notice, it's a vineyard of red wine here. That speaks of abundance. It speaks of fruitfulness. It speaks of bounty. It speaks of joy. And by the way, this is a contrast to Isaiah 5. In that, we had the song of the vineyard, but it was a dirge because that vineyard was Israel, and God was going to judge it because it hadn't brought forth fruit. But now we're in the millennium, and there's abundance of fruit. Why? Because, verse 3, I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. Now, this ought to tell somebody that God is not through with the nation Israel. These are passages of Scripture that everybody passes over. I'm confident many of you will say, well, I never heard this on radio before. Maybe you never heard it anywhere. But this is a passage of Scripture makes it clear God's not through with the nation Israel. Now listen to him. Or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Now the enemy can make peace with God even in the kingdom, for God never ceases to be merciful. Thank God for that. He's rich in mercy. He's got plenty of it. And I need a lot of it myself. And grace is something. We'll find out that 10 million years from today, why, grace will be there for us. We're going to need it, I think, even in heaven. Now, we have a strange expression here. Oh, let him take hold of my strength. That's verse 5 that he may make peace with me. Now, this is the only place in Scripture where it's even suggested that man can make peace with God. Now, you hear that a great deal today, make your peace with God. My friend, what can you do to make peace? He has already made peace. And Paul says in Romans 5, 1, "...therefore being justified by faith, we have peace." with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only place in Scripture where it says to make peace. And this happens to be in the millennium. So today, friends, you don't have to make it. He's made it. You don't make peace. We have peace. 
with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are ready to agree with God and trust Him with what He's done for you when Christ died on the cross, you will have peace. And brother, you won't have it until then. He says that. I didn't. Verse 7, "...hath he smitten him as he smote those that smote him, or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him?" Now, this verse here opens with a question. I think it's already been answered here in Isaiah. And it's this, "...why does God persecute Israel more than he did the other nations?" And when I say persecute, let me change that. Why did he judge them more, more severely? Well, I come back to this. Light creates responsibility. In view of the fact that Israel had more light, her sin was blacker and her punishment was greater. She received more stripes than the nations who smote her. You remember, God says in Amos 3, 2, "...you have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities." Her punishment was severe, but God did not destroy Israel as he did some other nations. In Psalm 118, 18, "...the Lord hath chastened me so, but he hath not given me over to death. He will not let them be destroyed." Verse 9, "...by this therefore shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged, and this is all the fruit to take away his sin." when he maketh all the stones of the altar, and so on. The sin of Jacob was purged by a blood offering, and the sin of the nation will be expiated by the blood of Christ. Just as you got saved as a sinner, that's the way it will take place in that day. Anyone that says today, oh, God is through with them. I don't know why they don't read passages of Scripture like this. Now we have here... The cities that Israel built, though, are to be destroyed like any city that man apart from God builds. Today, I don't think we're seeing fulfillment of prophecy. But those of you that see the ruins, for instance, of Masada, what a judgment. There has been nothing like that in the history of the world. Now, I can't go into that, but that was a judgment from Almighty God. And why? Because they had rejected light. They not only rejected light, they rejected the person of the Son of God. Now, verse 12, "...and it shall come to pass in that day..." And we are in this period now. Verse 13, "...it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria." the outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount of Jerusalem. And they're going to come out of Russia in that day. We're not seeing fulfillment today. My friend, when God moves them, God will move them, and they'll come and worship God. Just as he's called you and me, he'll call them. This section reveals definitely that God intends to restore the nation Israel to the promised land. And I have... No argument with those who deny it. I just say this to you. It's not even a question of whether they're going to be restored to the land. It's a question whether you believe the Word of God or not. And if you believe the Word of God, what are you going to do with a passage like this? May I say, you can't spiritualize it, because he's talked here about 
Assyria, Egypt, Israel, and Jerusalem. My friend, these are literal places. God says they are to be literally restored. You want to do something with that? Well, my suggestion is, if you say you have a high view of the inspiration of Scriptures, then believe what God says. Chapter 28. Now we come to the immediate invasion of Ephraim. That's the northern kingdom by Assyria, and it's a picture of the future and a warning to Jerusalem. We've ended one section now, and this chapter brings us to an entirely new section. The prophecies, which were totally future, that we've been looking at, they were in chapters 24 to 27. Now, from chapter 28 through 35, we have prophecies which have a local and past fulfillment. We've had both in the past. Now, we're going to see them brought together in a marvelous way. And they reach into the future. They cover the same period as the previous section. Now, we have six woes in this section. And when you say woe six times, it's time to woe. Only this is W-O-E. And it culminates in the great battle of Armageddon, or the war of Armageddon, I should say, in chapter 34, and is followed by the millennial benefits brought to the earth in chapter 35. Many know about chapter 35, but not much about 34. Now, this particular chapter that we're in now, 28, it's a fine illustration of the combination of the near and far view of prophecy, the past and future events, that which has been fulfilled, that which is to be fulfilled, that which is local and immediate, and that which is general and far distant. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel is designated here by the name of Ephraim, and it was soon to go into Assyrian captivity. And it was in 721 that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, invaded the northern kingdom, and he overthrew the kingdom, took the people into captivity. That's what's before us. We have here the immediate coming captivity of Ephraim. Verse 1, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Now, this is the northern kingdom. And the thing that has brought down every nation has been liquor, has been alcohol. The drunkards here are literal drunkards and those that are spiritual. And when they're spiritual, they are filled with pride and drunk with pride. They're in a stupor as far as spiritual understanding is concerned. Now you have here the crown of pride, verse 3. The drunkards of Ephraim shall be trodden underfoot. Maybe you don't like that. But God never apologized for it. He just told us that's what he did. And the prophet picks up the figure of the drunkards here and this high level of civilization that had been developed in the northern kingdom. And friends, all you have to do is to go to the hill of Samaria where you have the palace built by Omri and by Ahab. And that's where Ahab and Jezebel live. You know, it's interesting. The Lord always gives the wicked and the rich the best places to live in this world. And I think it's poetic justice. It's not going to be so good in the next world. So they get it pretty good. That is the most beautiful spot in that land. I stood on the hill of Samaria. I couldn't get there last time. 
because Israel really doesn't have the land. The soldiers were there, and it was a dangerous place to go. But on the hill of Samaria, I have stood. I've seen the Mediterranean Sea, the Jordan Valley, Mount Hermon covered with snow in the north, and the walls of Jerusalem in the south. Friends, you couldn't have a more beautiful place to live. And if a real estate developer develops that hill and sells lots, I hope I can get one and put me a little house there. I wouldn't mind living there. Great place, by the way. But God judged these people, and this high civilization, God brought it down. Now, we are told here that the prophet begins to move to the future. Verse 5, he says, "...in that day." In what day? Well, we've already seen that that day is the day of the Lord. Begins with the great tribulation period. It's a technical term. And extends on through the millennium. Now, we are told here, "...in that day shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty under the residue of his people." Now, that looks into the future, that which is yet future, to the millennial kingdom that is coming. Now, the thing that took Ephraim, or the northern kingdom, down was the fact they had the crown of pride. But in that future day, when God brings them back to the land, why, it'll be a crown of glory. Now, he says, "...and for a spirit of judgment to him that sitteth in judgment, and for strength." to them that turn the battle to the gate. But they also have erred through wine, through strong drink, or out of the way. The priest and the prophet had erred through strong drink. They're swallowed up of wine. They're out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. A man was telling me recently, he's a businessman that has contact with businessmen, I don't suppose there's a day goes by, but what he deals with men that are big operators, that is, they make big investments and they do it for large profits. And he was saying concerning a certain man that was beginning to indulge in sin, that is, unfaithful to his wife and drinking heavily. And he said the man recently has made certain judgments about investing that has caused him to withhold loaning money to him. And he said the reason is that when a man begins to drink and a man begins to indulge in sin, he loses his sharpness in business. Now, he said, I'm a Christian, and probably I'm biased in saying it, but he says, over the long haul, over a period of years, I happen to know that's factual because I've learned it through bitter experience. Well, God says that that was the thing that brought this nation down and brought judgment upon them. Now, I'm dropping down to verse 13. He says, "...but the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, Line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Now, it's a section like this, this verse here, in fact, this whole section here, that has caused many uh, expositors of the past 
to call Isaiah the prophet of the commonplace. And certainly that is true. Now, this is a great statement, friends, and it's a reason I'm pausing here with this. Now, there are a great many Christians today, and they're generally Christians that have a hang-up. They are not satisfied with their Christian life. They are very, I don't like to be, well, so brutally frank, but they're actually totally ignorant of the Word of God. And there comes along some little course that you can take in a week, maybe a two-week course, or maybe just a few days. And all of a sudden, you will be given the answer to all your problems. You'll know now how to get along with your mother-in-law, and you're not going to fight with your wife anymore, and you're going to be able to guide your children, right? The boss is going to give you a raise because you've become such a wonderful star in his employ. fact of the matter is, friends, it's the solution to all the problems of life. Let me say this to you very candidly, because some of you are being greatly disappointed today. I'm getting quite a few letters like that. And a great many people that think if they can just get a certain experience, and then they go into bitterness because the experience didn't solve their problem. Will you listen to what the Word of God has to say? There is no shortcut to the Christian life. There is no easy way. May I say to you today that the yoke the Lord Jesus gives is not an easy chair. And the only way in the world that you're going to grow as a Christian is just like this. And this is so commonplace, and this is so ordinary that I hesitate to say it. Because, very frankly, the minute you say it, somebody say, ho-hum, is that all? Well, friends, this is all. But it takes every bit of this. You want to know the word of the Lord? The word of the Lord was under them precept upon precept. Precept upon precept. Just the daily grind of getting into the word of God, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And what happened? They didn't follow through, and they fell backwards. That is, they are in a backslidden condition. That's the reason that so many Christians today are in a backslidden condition. It's not actually that they're weaker than anybody else. They just don't spend enough time in the Word of God. That's the thing. Now, I recognize that I'm not saying something that's exciting. If I would announce on this radio today, I have a little booklet. It'll take you 30 minutes to read it. If you write in and get it, this little booklet will give you the answer to everything in your Christian life. I will guarantee to you that the first day we'll have over a thousand orders for that little book. Because even this wonderful listening audience that I have, there'll be a thousand in it that would go for something like that. Friends, actually, to say it takes us five years to go through the Bible, that's not very exciting, do you think? Five years? Well, that's what it'll take, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. That's the only way you're going to get it, friends. Will you listen to him? Verse 14, Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, 
ye scornful man that rule this people, which is Jerusalem. And God says the judgment is coming to Israel in the north. It should be a warning to Judah in the south. Ephraim speaks to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem speaks to you and me today. And the Word of God speaks to all of us. You see, it looks as if God wrote this book not yesterday, but tomorrow. It's that much up to date. It's way ahead of tomorrow's paper. Now, will you notice? Because ye have said, this is verse 15, ye have made a covenant with death and with hell are we at agreement when the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Now, what is this covenant with death and Sheol? Well, Daniel says that these people will make a covenant with the prince that's coming, Antichrist, the man of sin, the godless man, the willful king that is coming, that Satan's man, the beast out of the sea, as well as the beast out of the land. That's the picture here. Verse 16, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation of stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Well, now, what's the answer to the falsehood and the lies and the deception that is abroad today and will continue to snowball right on down into the great tribulation period? What's the answer to it? Well, God's already put down the answer. It's a foundation. It's a stone. It's a tried stone. It's a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. And the one that believes in it, he doesn't need to be in a hurry today. He can rest in him. And Peter made it very clear in his epistle, first epistle, first Peter 2, 6 and 8. Let me give you just this. Wherefore also is contained in the Scripture... Behold, I lay in Zion a chief stone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, though stone which the builders disallowed the same is made the head of the corner, a stone of stumbling and a rock of fence. Even to him which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Now, Simon Peter makes it very clear that this stone is Christ. Now, we come down to this section here where God says that for these people, judgment is going to come gradually. And I think it comes that way today. Sometimes it comes suddenly. And what is worse than sudden judgment? Well, the thing that's worse is for it to come gradually, so gradually that you really don't even detect it. Verse 17, judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet, and the hail shall sweep away, the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. Now he says here in verse 20, for the bed is shorter than a man can stretch himself on, and the covering narrower than that he can wrap himself in. Have you ever gone to a hotel or motel or visit a friend and they put you in a bed and the cover's not quite long enough 
it won't come up around your neck. And if you do pull it up around your neck, your feet stick out. And then you find yourself in a short bed. Your feet hang over. Or you have to prop your head up. Or you have to sleep at an angle. That's not too good, is it? God says, I'm going to just begin by just giving you a short bed. The cover won't be quite enough. And then from there on, there will come the judgment of God. And it came to them. Well, they were a hundred years from it, but it came finally to them. Now he says here, and I won't read this section here, go into detail, but from verses 23 to 29, you have almost a parable of the wheat and tares. And he talks about the different kinds of grain and the fact that different kinds of grain require different kinds of thrashing. There is hard grains and there are soft grains. And you use the different kind. He says here, verse 28, bread corn is bruised, you see, because he will not ever be thrashing it. Got to be careful with the soft grains. Now, we have here fennel and cumin and wheat and barley and rye. They're all different. Now, that's the way God judges, he says. And the judgment is the harvest. The individual or nation will actually determine the character of the judgment which is to fall upon them. Isn't that interesting? In other words, if you are hard and resist God, you're a hard grain. You're a hard nut to crack. And the judgment's going to be severe upon you. Man came to me, and I don't have time to tell the story, but he lost his wife and two children. And then he came to himself. He said, God had to knock me down three times because he said I was such a hard, hardened sinner before I came to myself. Well, God will thrash you, friend, and you're a hard nut. I tell you, the judgment will be hard. The Lord Jesus put it like this in Matthew 13, 30, Let both grow together until the harvest, and the time of harvest. I'll say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, Bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And he says he's going to send forth his angels to gather out of his kingdom all things that are fan, and they will be judged. How tremendous this is. And you'll determine the kind of judgment, my lost friend. You are hardened. You'll only listen to him. He'll put you over where the wheat is. How different. Now, chapter 29, we have here prophecies concerning Jerusalem that begin with the immediate future, and they go right down unto the kingdom. And I'm not going to go into detail here, but we have first Jerusalem, history and prophecy, trodden down to the Gentiles, and then Jerusalem, meaning and message, as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, ye would not, your house is left under your desolate. And then Jerusalem, honor and glory. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now, we have here in verse 1, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt, add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Somebody says, well, what is Ariel or who is Ariel? Well, Ariel actually is Jerusalem. And we need to establish that fact, I guess. 
The name Ariel means lion-like, and it's so used of in Second Samuel twenty-three twenty when it speaks of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, a valiant man, and he slew two lion-like men. That is, two aerial men. Now, a lion-like man is an aerial man, and the word means the lion of God, and. In Ezekiel 43:16 the same word is translated altar. Now the word actually could mean under certain circumstances the altar of God. Now both designations are a fitting title for Jerusalem because it's the city where David dwelt. And the lion is the insignia of that family. Our Lord is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And Jerusalem was the place where the temple of God was. And the altar, of course, was there. So that we're talking about Jerusalem. Now we have here, woe to Ariel. Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Now, this is pronounced against this city where David lived, and it's against Jerusalem. This is a remarkable prophecy concerning this city, beginning in Isaiah's day and continuing right down to today. If you walk down the street there today, You'll see that this prophecy is just being fulfilled and will yet be fulfilled. He says, Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. Now, this is judgment upon Jerusalem. Now, he tells about, I'm going to camp around about it. Now, I'll lay siege against it. Nebuchadnezzar is yet to come, and he came up to the city and destroyed it. And then we have also the time of the Gentiles that began in 606 B.C. when Jerusalem was destroyed. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, our Lord said, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And then we go on here with the judgments that are to come upon Jerusalem. And the final attack upon Jerusalem is a judgment of God. But he's going to intervene at the last to deliver his people from extermination. And these dreams of the enemies of God to bring in their own kingdom will be frustrated. And then God will put them down. And then God will end their dream stuff. And then he will build the kingdom, establish it himself, as he said that he would do. Now, in verse 5, "...moreover the multitude of thy strangers..." the multitude of thy terrible ones. And Jerusalem is to be besieged. And this city has, I suppose, been besieged and captured and destroyed and burned more than any other city in the world today. For instance, I have a list here, not before me now, but in my files, of 27 sieges that were leveled against Jerusalem. Twenty-seven times this city was attacked. Twenty-seven times it was taken, destroyed most of those times. And that's the reason that today is not quite accurate to say to folk, well, come with us to Jerusalem and walk where Jesus walked. Well, you're not going to walk where he walked. Actually, You want to go to the Pool of Bethesda, you'll find out that it's about 50 feet down 
from the level of the ground today. And evidently, the Lord Jesus walked down there. And it's quite evident today that Solomon's temple was probably a hundred feet down, a hundred feet plus, down beneath where the mosque of Omar is today. Why is that true? Well, that city's been besieged, destroyed so many times, and then they'd rebuilt it right on the wreckage of the city that had been destroyed. They'd level it off. That's what you remember Nehemiah did, out of the debris and wreckage, why he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And they don't have to haul any rocks there. This is not needed. You heard a few years ago that they were shipping stone from Indiana to rebuild the temple. My friends, that, of course, was proven false, but how foolish it would be. They got more rocks over there than they need. There is no place on top side of this earth that's as rocky as Jerusalem and that area around there. It is a rugged terrain in that area. It's the reason the city was so difficult to take, by the way, by the enemy. And so he speaks here in verse 7, "...and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel." So the city has been destroyed and is yet to be destroyed in the future. Now, the Lord here, beginning with verse 9, we have the meaning and the message. That is, why is God going to judge and has he judged this city? Well, they've had the Word of God, which other cities have not had. They haven't been judged as severely as Jerusalem has either. The responsibility is measured by the light that you have, the privileges that God gives you. So beginning here at verse 9, he says, "...stay yourselves and wonder, cry ye out, and cry. They're drunken, but not with wine. They stagger not with strong drink." Why? Because, verse 10, "...for the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers hath he covered." Now, I want you to look here at a remarkable passage of Scripture, and this is so much up to date. We said that Isaiah is the prophet of the commonplace, and this will fit right down today in our contemporary culture. Let me tell you, did God actually make them sleepy? How did he do it? Well, this is the way he did it. He kept giving them light, and as he gave them light, they would not accept it. They could not see it. That revealed that they were blind. Now, if he hadn't given light to them, why, you wouldn't know whether they were blind or not. And that's the way that he puts them to sleep. That's the way that he reveals that people are blind today. Now, listen to verse 11. And the vision of all has become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. Now, will you listen to this just a moment? And this is very much up to date. Have you ever heard anyone say, I've heard seminary professors say this. I've heard ministers say this. Well, you know, the book of Revelation is a sealed book. Nobody can understand it. Well, that's what they said in Isaiah's day. 
about Isaiah's prophecies and about all the prophecies they had at that time. They had the Word of God. And they said, well, after all, you can't understand it. My friend, they didn't want to understand it. Verse 12, And the book is delivered to him that's not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I'm not learned. And somebody gives the excuse today, Well, I'm busy. I'm a Christian, and I really want to live the Christian life. But that five-year program, that's way out. I can't give that kind of time to the Word of God, you see. Well, all kinds of excuses are made today by Christians because of their ignorance of the Word of God. And let me come back to the book of Revelation. That's a book that it's said of it, it's not sealed. In fact, Revelation is the Greek word apocalypse, and that means unveiled. God took the seal off of that, says you can understand this. And in one sense, the book of Revelation is probably the simplest book in the Bible. Now, that means you must have 65 books underneath it that you've looked over before you come to it, because it's the last book of the Bible, and you don't begin with it, as some people do, but you take it up last. And when you do, you'll find out it's the simplest book in the Bible. We'll see that when we get to it. No book is so organized. It, to me, was the easiest book in the Bible to outline. I had trouble with some of the small books. No trouble with Revelation. It outlines itself. It's a book that I think is as clear as the noonday sun. And all this nonsense, say, well, you know, it's symbolic and it's a sealed book and we're not supposed to understand it. That's what they were saying in Isaiah's day. And God says, I'll judge you for that because I've given you light and you will not open your eyes. You're blinded to the light that I've given you. And that is the thing that God says to us today regarding Revelation. Listen to this. Revelation 1, 3. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy. Keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And then again in Revelation 22:10, And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. It's not a sealed book. Now, God says in verse 13, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of man. You see, if you'd been present in that day, you'd have wondered what Isaiah really meant. Because the people were going to the temple. Why, that area was crowded. Any time there was a sacrifice offered, you'd just find the people everywhere. And the whole temple area filled. The place for Israel, the court of the women, the court of the Gentiles, they're all there. And you would say, well, what in the world is God finding fault with these people for? They're all come to church. But my friend, they came there and they mouthed the thing. They went through the ritual. They could say the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed, but didn't mean anything to them. They didn't believe it. They didn't accept God's Word. And God says, your heart is far from me. And that's the reason I'm going to judge you. And my friend, that's the reason God's going to judge us. Why, all of this formality, 
all of this religion today. And my friend, may I say to you, the curse of the world is religion. And God would like for you to get rid of religion and come to Christ. It's the greatest barrier for a great many people. I mentioned that to a man not too long ago. And immediately he countered by saying to me, I want you to know, Dr. McGee, I'm a religious man. He says, you know, I'm a religious man by nature. Huh? He's got a fallen nature, but he's religious by nature. And I think I shocked him. I said to him, brother, you ought to get rid of your religion. He says, Why, aren't you a religious man? I said, no, I'm not. Well, he came back and he said, I can't believe that there's a preacher that's not religious. I said, I'm not. Well, he said, what are you then? Well, I said, I'm one that came as a sinner to Christ, and I have a relationship today with a person. That's no religion. It's a relationship. And that's the important thing. Do you have Christ or don't you have Christ? That's what he's trying to get through to these people here. And that's the reason that he judged them. And by the way, in verse 15, this is so serious with his people, he puts in an extra woe here. You know, we're in the section that deals with six woes. God doubles it up for this one. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, as if they could do anything that God didn't know about. Now, we come down to the last part of this. And verse 17 now, we see the future. You have the honor and glory. God's not through with that city. He's judged it. And all you have to look at it today, it's just like a layer cake there. One city on top of another. God is judged. But they're going to rebuild it again, and it'll be the city of God. And he says, verse 18, And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book. And the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The deaf are going to hear. The blind are going to see. And the meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord. And today there is a willful blindness. That was the difficulty of these people. Now in that day, the millennium that's coming, they're going to see. And at that time, verse 22, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. But when he seeth his children, the work of mine hand, in the midst of him they shall sanctify my name. Now what will they do with the name of God? They'll make it holy. They're going to set it aside as something wonderful. Today, God's people, by their lives, by their living, should sanctify the name of God. It's a holy name. But do we treat it that way?